Hey, uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the 11th Annual City Lit Festival. My name is Greg Wilhelm. I'm the Executive Director of City Lit Project. We're Baltimore's nonprofit literary arts organization. And um, uh, uh, welcome to the Pratt Library. This is the 11th uh, springtime that the Pratt Library has turned the keys over to this beautiful palace of knowledge and literature to City Lit to uh, present its annual festival. Um, in January, I finished a uh, low residency MFA program in creative writing at the University of Tampa. And one of the guests uh, that was invited to uh, speak with us and perform for us was this chap by the name of Wesley Stace. And I said, well, I've never heard of Wesley Stace. And um, then, then it became clear that this was uh, John Wesley Harding. I said, well, I that dude. Um, and uh, he was charming and funny, and I had no idea that under his uh, given name, his Christian name, that he also wrote novels. And uh, my third piece of amazement was when he said, I live in Philadelphia, <laughs> which you'll, you'll pick up from his accent. Um, uh, I said, well, hey, Wes, I do this uh, really cool thing in Baltimore. Why don't you come down and perform and read for us? Because uh, he has a brand new CD out, which unfortunately we weren't able to obtain, called Subtitled, which um, is a neat metaphor for, for his uh, sort of returning to this, uh, his original given name of, of Wesley Stace. Uh, but he also has this new wonderful novel, uh, Wonder uh, Kid, um, that is uh, funny and uh, entertaining and uh, it's a really, really great read. And uh, I, I, like, I like the plot twist and the plot sort of... Uh, method that I'm sure that he and Eric are going to get into. So when uh, it came to this combination of music and literature, I turned to my old friend Eric Guthridge, who was the morning DJ at uh, WTMD, which is a fantastic radio station in Baltimore, an NPR-affiliated station run out of town the university. He and I have done some programs in the past, uh, not unlike this, sort of where, where words and music kind of cross. So um, I'm going to uh, introduce Eric and uh, Wesley Stace, and uh, Wesley will do some reading for us and some music, and then um, after the program, he will uh, retreat to the downstairs Barnes & Noble area where you get your own copy of Wonder Kid signed uh, by him. So it, uh, having known Wesley for all of six months, it's a great, uh, not even six months, four months since January, um, I really do appreciate him um, loading up the old uh, jalopy and, and driving down from Philadelphia today to be with us at the City Lit Festival. And thanks, Eric, for, for uh, leading the program. So ladies and gentlemen, Eric Detheridge and Wesley Stings. Thanks. Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. And yeah, we're here to celebrate the artful use of the English language and prose and poetry. But for a moment, let's consider the art of nonsense. I mean, that's what's behind so many rock and roll songs. I mean, think of uh, a wop, bop, a loop, bop, a wop, bam, boom. What exactly is that, anyway? It's absolutely, absolutely absurd. Sounds like something a child might make up, and maybe rock and roll really is a kid's game. Well, his fourth novel, Wonder Kid, it's about a rock and roll band for the much younger demographic, a band that put the id back in kid. He is acclaimed author, educator, longtime independent singer, songwriter. He's known for his intellect and wit, both in songs and on stage. Wesley Stace is, uh, is here. Give Wesley a big hand. Uh, well, for, for those who are new to the book, who are the Wonder Kids? Who are they? Uh, but, well, um, I think that uh, the very easily answered is they are a band. Uh, in the early 90s, about when I started off, um, who are, whose music is works out, who, they're originally called the Wunderkinds, 
and the, their music is unsuccessful. Their first album is unsuccessful, New Wave, and uh, it's rebranded in a moment of inspiration by a businessman at a record company as music for toddlers. And <laughs> it becomes incredible, it's a deal with the devil that they take, uh, because it's a chance to play their music. They don't have to change their music beyond the old edit here and there. And so they decide to do that and they become incredibly famous and massively successful playing to the four to seven year old demographic. <laughs> um, and, that's, and their name is changed to the Wonder Kids. And, um, and, and that's when everything starts to go wrong. And they're incredibly successful. The moral of the story, don't change the German name. Uh, well, you know, there's an umlaut. The umlaut looks evil. One, two. Americans don't like Germans. That's a theory in the book. Three. Uh, the um, uh, you know, no one likes a word they're not confident they can pronounce. I think that's the record company's reason for not calling them the Wunderkinds. Ironically, you actually titled your book Wunderkinds. Is that right? It was originally called Wunderkinds, and um, in a fantastic moment, I went to see my agent. She said, "I, I, uh, I think you should change the title." And I said, why? They said, because, she said, because German, uh, Americans don't want a word they're not confident they can pronounce. And I said, not only will I change the title, but I'm now going to use this whole scene in my book, because it's exactly what would happen to the band too. See, absurd, right? Yeah. Well, the, the, the novel came about, I'd always kind of wanted to write a rock and roll novel, because I think to many people, myself included, that represents a kind of a holy grail in writing, that a lot of people have tried it, Salman Rushdie's written one, Don DeLillo's written one, you know, and a lot of them aren't as successful as you might think they would be. And so I decided that this was a good way, because of what I'm just about to tell you, to write a kind of sneak attack on rock, where it doesn't appear like I'm writing about rock and roll, even though that's the world of the book. And this kind of sub-genre of kids' music, which is now called kindy music, and is known through bands like, you know, Dan Zane's, The Wiggles, and a number of people like this who we see on Disney and, you know, on all kinds of popping up on, you know, PBS and stuff. And um, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. And when, I went, when they were little babies, people said, oh, I bet you do a kid's album now. And those people, in fact, don't know me very well because, A, I don't differentiate between what I do and what I would do for kids. I wouldn't even know how to write a song for kids. It would be like I was patronising them before I started. And, but what I did do is listen to a lot of music aimed at kids, and I did think a lot about those performers and their motivations and why they were so good at it and how they could keep that smile going. And I did think about those performers. So while I was thinking about them with no particular plan in mind, I read an article about the Wiggles, an interview with their manager in the New York Times. It was a fantastic piece of writing and it had the key line in it. Um, the interviewer asked the Wiggles manager or lawyer, why do the Wiggles always do the Wiggles dance when they meet the kids in photos? And his answer, rather too frankly, I thought, was that way you know where the hands are. And I, without wanting to go into that area in my book at all, I really like the idea of a band incredibly successful in a sphere in which they can't be trusted somehow. 
And they, they were a band you didn't know where the hands were because they were the first and they didn't realize that you had to be going like this the whole time. They didn't have a good team behind. They didn't. They had no team. The, the band's a disaster from beginning to end. And at the end of the story, as with all rock and roll tales, they're offered a little shot at redemption. But um, because, you know, they get uh, nominated for the, uh, uh, what's it called? Like, uh, you know, they're inducted into the Hall of Fame and the Jim Jammy Awards for kindy music. And the first person to be inducted is obviously Pete Seeger. That was the first year. And then the second year was Peter, Paul, and Mary. And the third year, they induct the Wonder Kids, as though all is forgiven, because things go very badly wrong for them indeed. Well, and for, for Peter, too, for Peter, Paul, and Mary, but I guess you got the redemption there. I know, I mentioned yeah. that in the book, actually. <laughs> I'm a bit ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of it, but I did meet him really soon before the book was published, and I was like, yeah, I did just bring up this thing in my book that you're not going to want me to report on. I read about it on Wikipedia, so I guess it's true. Well, speaking of looking up there too, if you don't know what I'm talking about. Hey guys, it was different times. That's right. Well, speaking of Wikipedia and doing research, what kind of research did you do for this book? How did you get into this whole kids in the rock music world? Well, in a sense, I didn't really do very much research. I mean, a lot of the research I did was just listening to the music and attempting to understand it. Another very, very key piece of research is actually ends up as chapter 17 of this book, which is I went to a thing called Kindy Fest um, in uh, Brooklyn, and it was like a South by Southwest, all in one day, maybe two days, for people who make this kind of music, and everybody was handing out their CDs, and bands were playing, and there were panels, and I write a lot about it, and I write a lot about that because that was a key piece of research for me, and then a lot of it was my life. I mean, because what I'm really kind of writing about, you know, in the end, is, is, is a, the absurdities of the music business, and I've been in it for 25 years now, and um, I've noticed a bunch of things over there. So a lot of the meetings that they go to, frankly, are meetings that I went to, and a lot of the managers they had and distillations of relationships that I have with people. And I mean, I think that's why I'm really pleased uh, at the response to the book from, from rock and roll people. It's really been a fantastic pleasure having people get in touch with me and just go, you know, you just got it right in this book. And it's like, that's really incredibly gratifying because certainly I, as someone in rock and roll, do not read Sam Rushdie, a writer I greatly admire, uh, and, and do not read his book, uh, The Ground Beneath Her Feet, and think he has rock and roll right in any way whatsoever. You know, so that was really nice. On the other hand, what I've also discovered about this book is I think literary people essentially don't want a book with that cover. I think that might be a little bit too much fun. I should have made it look a little more serious, I think. All those colors kind of pop out, yeah. And I mean, at, at the heart of the book are, are two central characters. Uh, the narrator, Sweet, who's, who's, a, who's a, we meet as a teenager, and uh, Blake, the, uh, the front man of Wonder Kids, and uh, it's really at the heart of the book, this father-son, you know, push and pull. This, uh, you know, describe how they, they run into each other, much like rock and roll runs into kids' music, how that happens, and uh, how you develop well, this father-son relationship. Well, to start with, all, all my books, the first one, you know, Misfortune is about um, a boy dressed up in girls' clothes in the 18th and 19th centuries, and the, the next book is about is narrated half of it by a ventriloquist dummy. And the third book um, was about classical composers and English identity and classical music. But they're really all about families. That's what all my books are about, apparently, I now realize. 
And so I, I knew, originally I wrote this book as an oral history, because that's a genre of book that I think is right for both parody and also suits very well the rock and roll medium, you know, because I was reading the oral history of the Pixies and the oral history of the replacements and the oral, and I, was re I read about 30 of these books running, Real, they're all great. You can't help have that kind of book be good if you just like take people who were actually there. But when I started writing the book in that style, I realized I had a big problem because A, you have to be too good a uh, mimic of people's voices. You, you just, because unless everybody just speaks in the same voice, you've got to come up with 40 different ways of 40 different people talking their exact speech patterns. Otherwise, it would just seem like the same person. And B, because of the way those books are set up, I'm not Nabokov, and he could probably do it, but there's no emotional center. It's very hard to make an emotional center, and I needed one, and so I thought, and so I thought, well, it's got to be narrated by his son somehow. The son is only 10 years younger than he is. That's stupid. Um, um, uh, and, uh, but he's adopted, obviously. And um, so he narrates, and how they meet is he's, the, the boy is stealing records from the local record shop. He's stealing, um, he ain't heavy, he's my brother, by the Hollies, which he doesn't want, but he does want to steal it. And the guy at the end of the, sh at the shop, read that bit. Uh, it's, it's funny actually, I've, I've, I've never ever written, I've never ever read this bit, so I don't have any little markings on it, but I can probably do just a little, a little version of it. Or maybe I can't actually, I think that might be a bit, a bit ambitious, I'm not sure. Naturally I turned to shoplifting. One day I raised the stakes, I was hanging around at our price, when I was little, it was the gramophone record store, or something Edwardian, with a big eye logo, lots of dusty classical records and a few singles. Then it became Small Owls, its greatest iteration. But Small Owl, who was enormous, died. And after hanging on as stylus for a few months, the shop was transformed into an art price with those gaudy round stickers taking up half the LP cover. CDs were taking over and the racks contracted. It briefly reigned as the world's tiniest virgin megastore, at which point LPs disappeared entirely and then it was called cut price or cheap deal or something. And for a while it was an HMV and then maybe a Zavi which sold only computer games, DVD mugs and mobile phones. And then it vanished, entirely eaten up by the theme pub next door. And what with Amazon and eBay, there hasn't been a record store in our town since. I don't know why I read that. Bit. That's the setup for the shop. Anyway, so he steals a. That's what happened to record stores in England in one paragraph. Um, so he steals the record, and the guy runs after him. And he's seeing an open window, ducks into the window, and he, he and he jumps headfirst, banging his head into the dressing room of the Wonder Kids as they're just about to play a gig to children. And in a helpful gesture to him, they let him become their merch boy, and that's how they leave. And that's how, that's how he meets his father, Blake. And Blake, the front man of a, of a rock band, he tends to be impulsive, you know, like a, like a rock and roll guy yeah. would. And he adopts this kid, this, who he calls Sweet. And that's just kind of the person that, that Blake is th throughout the book, it seems. How would you describe, uh, if you could flesh out Blake's character? Because I find him to be very delightful. Yeah, I think, you know, he, Blake's kind of, he's, he's all it. He's like, a, he's like a naughty child. He wants to communicate. He, his big motto is, don't teach kids anything with music. 
Because in five years' time, all they're going to hear about is the environment is screwed and there's only two animals left in the world. And that's all that's going to be the subject matter of all songs. So for now, just let's entertain them. Let's be stupid. Let's cover ourselves in peanut butter. So what he does is he tries to reinvent rock and roll. He tries to interpret rock music through the lens of what children would like to see. So he like, you know, well, everything you can think of that's ever happened on a rock music stage, like Iggy Pop cutting himself and bleeding and you know, wearing a horse tail, and ELO having the big spaceship coming. I know all those millions of fans, Jim Morrison doing that thing that he did on stage in Miami, where he revealed himself. He, Blake does all those things, but in kind of ways that children can appreciate it, understand. <laughs> he really gets caught out with the last one, though, which I won't give away what happens, but it happens on a pay-per-view, and it goes really badly wrong. Let me read you a bit about Kidney Fest. This is narrated by the sun. I have wanted to explode the myth that family music was made by failed rock musicians. Sadly, this would not be possible. It was the truth confirmed by almost every speaker, the exception to this being the family music made by already successful rock musicians who had decided not only that the kids were all right, but that the toddlers were all right too, a move known among cynics as Last chance for a Grammy. One notable success story summed it up on the second panel. Well, I'm seeing the same stuff I sang before when no one listened, except now the songs are accompanied by cartoons of a talking strip of bacon. I felt sorry for the people with questions after the panels, but most of my sympathy was reserved for anyone trying to come up with a name for his kid-friendly band. Honestly, have a go, then Google it. It's taken. As my mind wandered, I toyed with the idea, a possible hook for the article, of making up a fake kindy band. So I began to play a parlor game, and here's the list. The Cribs, Spit Rag. The Blankies, Tantrum. The Meltdowns, Booster Shot, the Swing Set, Potty Mouth, the Mad Hatters, the Magic Words, the Bad Words, the Balloons, the Pop Tarts, the Pull Ups, the Dr. Spots. There were hundreds of them. My iPhone corroborated that every single one of them was taken, and not all by bands playing for kids. <laughs> Why had I agreed to write the stupid article? Mostly because a friend, drunk, backstage, desperate for copy, offered money and a plane ticket after he read a thing I wrote about some of the weirder Wonder Kids concerts. The story of family music is basically this. The children of rock and roll grew up had their own children, and needed options other than crappy Raffi. They wanted their kids to listen to music that they could stand to listen to themselves, because unlike their parents, who thought it was all crap anyway, they actually liked pop music, and they could tell the difference between good and bad pop music. They didn't want to pollute their own kids' minds with crap, and they certainly didn't want to contaminate the stereos in their cars and in their kitchens. I went to a three-year-old's party the other day. The bespoke mixtape was Pixies, The Clash, and Ramones. I was aching for someone to sing a song about going to a zoo, zoo, zoo. And I think the kids were too. Then some of these parents, musicians, who were themselves in rock and roll bands, found they couldn't make a living. It's not uncommon. 
and they decided to take matters into their own hands to provide music for their own kids, music that they and other parents like them wouldn't mind listening to, music that was anti-Raffi, anti-Barney, not the Wiggles. And this music, some of it, totally reinvigorated the children's music scene. Think punk, that kind of thing. Crucially, it was music for kids and adults alike, but when you sliced it right down, it had to be palatable to adults, at least initially, because they were the mums, ones with the money. Disney worked this out years ago, but Kindy worked it out for rock and rollers. The secret is that rock and roll has always been for kids, a wop bop a loo bop a lot bad boom. This music just made that more explicit. And now these guys had their own conference, and I was the ideal person to cover it. Okay, hold well, on. Now I have to flick back and find this bit. Because this is the next bit to read. Okay, still going. Simeon, real name Simon Fonseca, unknown outside America, had been a moderately successful folk singer in the early 70s during the bust rather than the boom. Too square for the hippies, he'd managed to carve a niche for himself on public broadcasting, singing cheery, empowering songs for children about friendship, cooperation, generosity, and other similarly uncontroversial behaviors. Favorites included You Are Your Own Best Friend, Today is a Brand New Day, All Over the World, and Giving is Better Than Getting. He held a guru-like sway over his constituency. Once you heard his name, and none of the Wonder Kids ever had, he was everywhere. Simeon gave up in the mid-90s. After he'd milked the cow dry, he decided that much of his money had been made immorally. From then on, he appeared only at events that promoted world peace, particularly those that publicised or donated to his nebulous Empowering the Child campaign. He was against everything. He was against television. He was against the internet. He was against the future. Only kids counted, and he didn't like singing for them anymore. But in 1991, Simeon was the shit, the poop, and the band was to be on his show soon. But given that only two of them remained, the appearance came with strings. And one of these strings was Becca, Simeon's daughter from his fourth marriage. And so she joins the band, and I could read endlessly from this book, which I have hundreds of Well, it brings up a point. I mean, because if you're, you're a parent, and your kids listen to music, and you, you, you kind of think about those messages that Simeon was talking about, world peace, cooperation, and that's a nice thing for, for kids to learn. And so, so as a parent, how do you balance wanting them to hear that message of music with like burning off steam and rock and roll? I don't, I don't want them to hear any message from music whatsoever. I mean, you know, they're being taught messages at school, and I mean, you, I think it's one of the slightly depressing things about even TV culture. It's all very worthy these days. I kind of like that stupid program that was on recently with Vance, what was that, you know, which rock bands played on? I can't remember, not Binky Zuni. It was a pretty cool show, but it was just goofy. It was goofy, and I mean, you know, it's wonderful that my daughter knows the name of every extinct animal, and it's fantastic that yesterday was Silence Day at school for the oppressed around the world. I mean, it's great, but she doesn't need to hear that in songs as well. You want your kids to rock, right? I did. Well, actually, there's a good story. My um, uh, my son, we have a thing on here, on this machine, it's called the Ultimate Playlist. And on this playlist, we have, uh, here's what's on it now. Playlist. Okay. 
So I'll just tell you what's on it right now. You might know some, you might not. Call Me Maybe, Carly Rae Jepsen. Gangnam Style, Ghostbusters theme, Hall of the Mountain Womble, I Don't Want to Rock Around With You by The Ramones, I Like to Move It, Move It by Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Hall of the Mountain King, The Madness Scar Version, One Way or Another by Blondie. It's great, right? You know, it's like the stuff they like, the stuff they like through me. And my son said, will you put the Spider-Man theme on there? So I was like, yeah, okay, sure, I'll look up the Spider-Man theme. So I, get, I look up, it's like, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, you know what I'm doing earlier? Does whatever, a Spider-Man. I was like, great. So I find that and I download it, he's fine. And, and, he, and he, I said, do you want anything else on there? And a week later, he goes, yeah, put the Iron Man theme on. So I go online, I look for Iron Man, he's like, Iron Man, Iron Man. And there isn't one. And I go, I can't find an Iron Man thing. It doesn't exist. And so we go online, and he says, oh, look. And so he just goes on YouTube, and he's like, with his finger going like this. And he goes, it's this one. I'm like, whoa, no, it isn't. That's Black Sabbath, song Iron Man. And I'm thinking, I'm 48 years old, and I hate Black Sabbath, which makes me an idiot. But I, you know, I don't like them, and I don't want to listen to them at 7.30 in the morning when I'm taking the kids to school, which is when we listen to the ultimate playlist. And he goes, that's the one, that's the one. I'm a good father. So I download Digital Greatest Hits, Black Sabbath, 70, 67 to 74, or whatever it is. Turns out to be, I would say, in my life, one of the most revolutionary things I've ever, I've never really heard Black Sabbath before, certainly never heard Iron Man. Warheads? I'd never heard Warheads. I just, I mean, I'm sure I had, but I had never registered that's what it was. And I was introduced to Black Sabbath in the, during the last month. Uh, by my five-year-old son. And we were on the way to school the other day, my friend who's very into all that kind of music said, I said, I'll just play something on the playlist. And he said, Wynn, what do you want to hear? And, and Wynn goes, War Pigs. And James was like, did you set that up? I was like, no, it it's really, really likes it. I don't know what to do. But the point is, it's great. So, you know, I, I, I rather like the fact that he's introduced me to some music that I consider, because I've been a music snob my whole life, to be, you know, immature and rather stupid. And, uh, but I didn't, but only really, because I didn't like the people who listened to it when I was the right age to listen to it. I thought they were stupid. I thought they looked stupid, smelled stupid, and I didn't want anything to do with people who listened to the Black Sabbath or progressive rock music. And now I'm 48 and I don't have any of those considerations and, or much less, as we all know, when you grow older, you give up on those considerations. So you're listening to Yes now? Oh, I've been listening to Yes for years, but again, it was a late discovery for me. You know, but I think that's great. I think it's important that there's music you get to when you're older in your life that you can then listen to without all the baggage that muddled you earlier. Because of course the point is in every kind of music there's great and there's bad. And I don't think it means I'm going to listen to Voivod and Slayer for the rest of my life. But I do think that I could write anyone get anybody to like that Black Sabbath first album because it's insanely great. Now I find that I've always tried to communicate with my parents through music, you know, when I was a kid, trying yeah. to get them to like something that yeah. I like, and, and they were, it was just over their heads. Did you have that problem with your parents when you were younger? Did you try to get them into yeah. things? Like well, you know, my, my, my mom was an opera singer and, and is, a, is a voice teacher and very in the classical music world. Fair to say she's never bought a pop record. She doesn't dislike it all. I think she quite like Three Times a Lady by the Commodores. But, um, <laughs> which I'm actually for her as a Valentine's present when I was there. But um, my dad is really anti. I mean, he really thought it was rotting my brain. I remember a great moment when we were coming back in the car from school when I was young, 
And he said, he'd never really said anything about it before. He said, I don't want you listening to the Sex Pistols. And I was like, okay. And he's like, because I've been reading about that, and that's, you know, that's bad. And I was like, really? Why are you going on about the sex? And I had just bought Pretty Bacon. It was like literally in a plastic bag at my feet in the car. I was like, yep, there'll be no listening to that. Uh, this is going to be a slow two weeks, Dad. Um, but, you know, but so they were actually, they weren't anti it, but my, to me, you know, my dad can so relate to the novels that I write, and he's never really been able to relate to the music just because it's not stuff he likes or can appreciate. I mean, he just doesn't get it at all. Does he write Wonder Kid? Yes, and there's a character that's a little bit based on him in there. And he said, uh, I knew he'd, I mean, he couldn't fail to spot it. Just uses a couple of turns of phrase of my father. And uh, my dad said at the end of it, well, after he read it, he went, yeah, enjoy the book. Uh, Barry's an interesting character. And I went, oh dear, here it comes. And he went, very nice, he said, very nice the way he turned out to be such a good grandfather, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, <laughs> So Yes, Dad. One my favorite prop in, in the book is uh, is peanut butter. I mean it's it's lots it's, of peanut butter. Lots of it's a, it's a symbol, this natural symbol, who knew of complete and utter anarchy. Yeah. Describe how that's used, and uh, it, it's used in, in one of the songs that... Uh, that yeah, they hit. That's right. Yeah, that's right. In fact, um, yeah, well, it, 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 Blake goes into a kind of frenzy on stage, and at one point in the frenzy, he decides to cover himself in peanut butter from the deli tray, and he starts making sandwiches of it, chucking it out of the crowd, and what you chuck into a crowd, the crowd chucks back, both literally and metaphorically, and um, this becomes a thing that becomes part of their stage show, jam and peanut butter, it's a big mess, it's like Icky Pop, except it's jam and peanut butter, as opposed to blood and whatever else it might be. So Blake, uh, you know, kind of takes this to its logical extreme, and the business people take it very seriously and start uh, selling, you know, Wonder Kid peanut butter at the merch stand. And so everybody's happy with this idea, and uh, and that's it. I mean, that's it really. Um, except that, yeah, it's uh, it's just a, another. It's just a. It's it's a weird stage prop for him. But he hasn't quite understood that the peanut butter we had in England, you know, was that Sunpat peanut butter that comes kind of pre-mixed. You know, that's the peanut butter we all grew up with. But now, the organic peanut butter, they've got like an inch of oil on the top, and that's real mayo. I, I think it's back the oil on the top even here in the States. Yeah, it's right. the 1990s, right? Let me find that, let me find that little bit, because I could, um, I could play you that song. Here we go. And I should say that the, the song um, that you're going to sing, you co-wrote this with uh, with, with an indie rock band that some of you may know. They're called the Fiery Furnaces. That's right. Matthew and Eleanor Freeberg. So uh, they they did the you did the lyrics. They did the music. How did that work? Um, what happened was um, what happened was I was writing a lot of songs at the time. And I had a lot of lyrics, and we just started. We, we became friends through the Cabinet of Wonders, and we started writing together. And we ended up writing uh, 12 songs on her for her record that came out. And, and I think The Rock Around the Bed was one of the first ones we wrote together. And I'll just read a little bit that kind of leads up to it. On the set of Simeon's House, so that's the show we were just talking about, the great man himself approached, ignored the rest of the band, and kissed his daughter on the lips. Hi, honey. Glad your new band could be on the show. Right. 
She introduced him as her father, but she called him Simeon. He immediately proved himself the dick you suspected him of being. One side of his collar was up, and Blake, concerned that no one would spot this before the cameras rolled, told him, told him that his collar was up. Oh yeah, said Simeon. Thanks. He said it in the least possibly grateful way, whereupon he pointedly did not adjust his collar and walked away. Becca shook her head in embarrassment, excusing her father with a pressures of show business shrug, and Blake laughed in polite astonishment. Get her, said Jack, in his camp pantomime day voice. He'll have it sorted by the time the red light goes on, said Blake, and he had. Big chip, no salsa, Becca whispered in Blake's ear as they watched from behind a camera. He's my father, but only technically. The Wonder Kids were to play Rock Around the Bed, minus the verse with the offensive lyric. She pushed me back on the kitchen table. I nearly fainted as we got acquainted. Two verses, chorus and a bridge, were quite enough. They rehearsed the song five times for a camera, after which they were escorted to wardrobe for styling and makeup. Just a little to take off the glare, said Jack, in his best Ringo accent. It was a line from Hard Day's Night. I love your accent, said the stylist. You sound just like a beetle. Jack looked the most dashing with his hair slicked back. The record company provided the clothes. One trip down Melrose was all it took. Lightweight suits in primary colours. Red for Blake, blue for Jack, yellow for Mum and white for Curtis. There's a photo of the four of them waving like a flag, unaware that it is their last moment of obscurity. If Simeon was Andrew Gold, Randy Van Warmer, Stephen Bishop, and all the other modestly bearded, lonely boys of the 70s, the Wonder Kids were the Sex Pistols. And he'd let them into his house. He'd invited the vampires in. I have a clip on my laptop. Simeon's intro is like Ed Sullivan's for the Beatles. Uh, they're over from England with a song that I know you're going to take to your hearts, housemates. And the song is called Rock Around the Bed. And Simeon had sounded the death knell of his own career. It was the first time he'd ever uttered the word rock on his show. And he had no clue how much trouble the band was going to cause him or his family. They were quite unlike anything that had ever appeared on Simeon's house. The previous musical guest in a merino ski sweater had crooned Bingo was his name-o to the strains of his classical guitar, foot perched on a knee-high stool. Here's the song. This is this is so. This takes place in an alternative universe where this is a number one single. I got my pajamas on. I look like a pirate. Got some knock-knock jokes in my back pocket. I've got a rocket and I know how to fire it. I'm full of desire. I've got a tennis racket, it looks like a guitar And an actual facsimile of Noah's Ark And a safari park full of zebras and swans All my planes have gone And I'm gonna rock around the bed I'm gonna rock around the bed I've got songs stuck in my head I'm gonna rock around the bed And you can keep your peanut butter in your sliced white bread I've got songs stuck in my head I'm gonna rock around the bed 
I've got my blazer on, I look like a moron. My satchel got dropped in a big old puddle. It's all a muddle, but I know the scores, child positions, and the dates of wars. And since I heard the first chord of a hard day's night, my love of sport and bathing used to make me feel alright. Now it seems so overrated, just for lightweights, oh yeah. And I'm gonna rock around the bed and go, rock around the bed and go. Songs stuck in my head, I'm gonna rock around the bed. You can keep your ham and cheese in your mini bag down. Songs stuck in my head, I'm gonna rock around the bed. Then I met a girl, she was a little bit older. She smelled of body shop and instant coffee. I offered her a toffee, she told me where to go, like I'd offered her a cold. Then I met a girl that I couldn't label With long dark bangs, she looked like a painting She pushed me back on the kitchen table I almost fainted as we got acquainted Dear diary, I will no longer keep you I'm inspired to write poetry My notebooks will be spiral bound They look quite astound Some of them actually with Eleanor Friedberger's brother Matthew from the, the Fiery Furnaces. Um, and uh, yeah. But I mean, sometimes that's, that's, that's the whole point in a way. I mean, like when we're kids and we're listening to those rock songs, I mean, good rock songs. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on there, but it's over our heads. It's just the beat, it's the fun, it's, yeah. the, it's the. And silliness. also, that's why I like the big new wave band, because there's kind of bounciness and kiddiness to that movie, uh, music that I, you know, that I could. Well, not like I could imagine. I did, it was the kind of music I liked when I was small. Talk about nonsense, Wes, as the central theme, or one of the central themes. It totally is the central theme. Nonsense is a fascinating thing, and, and part of this was me, part of this was me um, thinking just about nonsense, and, and at some point during the creation, I had an idea to actually write a nonsense trilogy, and this might be the first volume of it. Uh, because nonsense has been used in many ways in history, one of the more interesting ones being that, you know, in, in, in dictatorships and totalitarian regimes, nonsense is a way that you can protest, but in a way that you can get away with it because it's nonsense. And that's why, you know, Václav Havel's surrealist theatre in Czechoslovakia was a real, you know, political force. Because it's very hard to put someone away for something no one can understand what they're saying. So I like the idea very much of having a band who were uncensorable. 
in certain ways. Who, the, the, there's a lot about the PMRC. Do you remember the PMRC? Typical. Right, here's a little bit about the PMRC just because it's germane to nonsense and, and what we're talking about. There was one problem trying to get our attention. We shouldn't have ignored it. The Parent Music Resource Centre, a.k.a. the PMRC, was still causing trouble. It had been a few years since Tipper Gore first heard the lyrics to Prince's Darling Nicky. 1985, the PMRC's Alice Mirabilis had seen Tipper release her Filthy 15, a list of the foulest songs ever written, including some really naughty ones by famously anti-establishment rabble-rousers like Cindy Lauper and Sheena Easton. The list came with a dinky rating system, along with an accompanying series of demands, stickers and so on, that the record companies, fearing a drop in sales, willingly caved into. The next year came the hearings, seen around the world on MTV, for which musicians like Jello Biafra, Frank Zappa and John Denver came out against censorship, even though the PMRC thought John Denver was going to speak in its favour. It turned out he was more interested in becoming a spaceman. So much for rock music. How about music aimed directly at children? How extra vigilant would the organisation have to be with this new genre, rock music for kids? How much more pernicious was music without any adult constituency at all, which aimed to corrupt children directly? The truth is, no one until now had said anything remotely dodgy in a piece of music aimed at children. Oh, sure, puff the magic dragon. But I mean, not really. <laughs> Now the Wonder Kids causing riots, bearing breasts, singing songs that said, what, what were they singing about? Clearly, they were a special case. Why did the society matrons pick on us? Okay, so good. The Wonder Kids earned itself a case file larger than any other group, and in a way, the PMRC was right, but for the wrong reasons. What the Wonder Kids was doing was much more subversive than anything WASP or Twisted Sister would ever manage. Those jokers were about as threatening as a Benny Hill video. <laughs> the Wonder Kids were changing children forever. You can still see it in their grown-up eyes. They look at you slightly children of the corn when they talk about their own experiences of the band. You know they were taken young. They were playing rock around the bed when one Jacqueline Belmer, our nemesis to be, had first seen them. Forget the girl who pushes Blake back on the kitchen table. What about the innocent little boy in verse 1 who's got a rocket and knows how to fire it? She didn't like the sound of that very much. And then within minutes on TV, blood and teeth flying. What clearer sign of the cause and effect of the group's moral corruption? And so they go on. The PMRC's problem was that they couldn't quantify the corruptive potential of music itself. They could only run the rule over naughty words, saucy record covers, and what the butler saw videos, and the Wonder Kids didn't have any of these. They slipped through the net, but the PMRC couldn't accept that there was a realm over which they had no claim. No good fascist ever does. So they invented a mini-me version of themselves to keep an eye on the new genre of music known as kiddie rock. This new pressure group called themselves mums, morality over music. And they were even more vindictive than their progenitors. The innocence of America's children was at stake, and the Wonder Kids were public enemy number one. We first saw Jacqueline, the mum-in-chief on television, in her pearls and a red business suit, a proto-Palin without the ammo. 
And Jack remarked without irony, now her, her, I could go for her. Look at the rack on that. And Blake said, go on, go on, Jackie boy, give her a ring, sort her out. Thank you. What I like about the, the life on the road, and I'm sure that you're, you're well versed and acquainted with that, is that at one point the, the Wonder Kids are traveling in two separate tour buses. Yeah. You have the two principals, you got Blake, the lead singer, his brother Jack, the guitar player, and that's in one tour bus where all, it's very Freudian, like all the id is going on in that bus. Yeah. And then you have the second tour bus with the bass player and the, the drummer where they're practicing yoga, they're drinking herbal teas, they're going to bed on time after the show. And so you have sort of like the super ego, and then the sweet sort of goes in between, and he's right. sort of like the, 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 the ego. He's, he's it's very yeah, exactly. Right. So describe life in this book on the tour bus and some of the rules that they, uh, that they try to adhere to. Well, I'll tell you what, one of them, in the end when they have two, two tour buses, uh, one's called Heaven and the other's called Hell, and, um, and what goes on is disgusting, actually. Um, it's horrible, I don't even want to think about it, but um, the, the, yeah, I mean, you know, life, life in a tour bus is very strange. It becomes very outside reality. When you get out of it, when you get out of it after a long trip, you feel as though you're on drugs, even though you're not, because you've been going very fast, but also living at a normal tempo, because there's so much room in there. I suppose it would be the same in any large camp of that, but they're very spacious, these things, you know. And, you know, the rules of, I, I can't remember, there are three really clear, I asked a million people what are the rules of a tour, tour bus. And, you know, number one is don't, don't shit in the toilet. And the other one is two, don't sleep with your head facing the driver. Obvious when you think about it, because you're in these little coffins all the way down. And if you sleep with your head facing the driver, if he comes to a halt, you're going to hit your head on the thing. So. That's a very obvious one. And three, the biggest one, well, don't get left behind. And I've experienced the best ever left behind, which I didn't, I should have just said it in this book, but the best left behind I ever had was when I was on the road with Joan Baez, and they left her at a service station. You can't leave Joan Baez. I know, leave Joan Baez. I know, something, because it was the middle of the night, and we'd all got back on, and her door was closed. She hadn't been at the back, and her door, very like, you know, Blakey, she just took over because she was Joe Biden, she do what she wanted. She was at the back of the thing, and you know, the doors closed, some people assumed she was in there, and then she rang up on her cell phone or something 20 minutes later and says, Have you guys gone? And we were just hurtling down the highway at two in the morning to our next destination. It was like there's, all, there's always, it's, two of us is a pretty fun after a gig for about an hour and a half. And then they just become really depressing because you, you're going to be on them all night and all your friends walk off. And, you, and then, so the, net, the thing you look forward to at that point is the first stop, which will be to, you know, get a drink or to, um, I don't know, whatever, at the first rest stop. And that was where she got left behind. And I think uh, <laughs> part of what I love the book too is this, this travel of traveling the bus and going across the country touring America. I think Peter Buck of REM uh, praised your book and said he just basically feel the gravel beneath his feet uh, reading the book. So, well, thank, uh, thank you for thank, um, not that we're ending, but thank you very much for your thorough reading of the book. I appreciate uh, your, uh, it's a fantastic, fantastic book. Yeah, and there are a lot of great characters. Of course, you have Jack, the brother. And, and that's always fascinating in rock and roll because you think of the Gallagher's, you think of the Davies, and then yeah. you, have, you have Blake and, and, and Jack kind of describe their push and pull. Well, you know, Blake's the nonsense genius and Jack's all business. 
And he, he's the one who deals with all that side of stuff. And he's also a great guitar player. And when they watch Top of the Pops together as children, they're watching a completely different show because Blake is watching the lead singer with his crazy hat, whoever. And Jack's just watching the guy behind the lead singer. He's like... <laughs> he can keep an eye on the girls in the front row. Doesn't have to do all the work. It's kind of quiet control. And so he's the lead guitarist, and, and that's kind of their relationship. And I, I was very interested while I was doing it in, you know, the, the Knopflers. They were brothers. They were in dire straits together, and then, you know, one, one of them got chucked out and never much had a career. And then there's Mark Knopfler, and then there's the Davises, who were like all, you know, chucking symbols of each other on stage. And the Gallagher's, if it was their shtick, the Everly Brothers, sure. who, who really peddled the kind of brothers singing in beautiful harmony thing, but also had smashed guitars at it on each other on the wow. stage and stuff. And I just thought that was fascinating to have two brothers in a band. And I liked the idea of them being very different people, as indeed they would be. And Sparks, actually, if anybody likes the band Sparks, that's a really interesting brother act, because what they did was they did what I think would be probably the smartest thing for brothers to do, which is be completely different. You one know, one talks and one is completely Yeah, one never says a word, the other one does all the talking. One's kind of glamorous and good looking and the other's doing looks like Adolf Hitler. And he, yeah, he has a funny mustache. Yeah, but his mustache and his hair looks like there's something very strange. But they differentiate, and that was a clever, that was a clever use of the brother act, I think. Very much. Um, but, uh, but so, yeah, I've got a lot about brothers, and I don't know whether I even exploited that to the full, because what you learn when you're writing novels is they can only be about so much. You can only have so many themes in a book, otherwise it's just all going to spin out of control. I, I really admire writers who can keep it very small and Fabergé egg-like, you know, intricate and tiny and beautiful, and I just can't do it. My mind doesn't work like that. But you have to, you know, that, you could write a novel just about that relationship there. But, my, but as people who read the book will find out, I, I needed Jack to perform a certain function in the book, and he does. He does so. it very well. So as you're writing this, um, which one of these characters did you have the most affinity with, did you relate to the most, which one is the most like you? Well, that's a very interesting question. The band, as I say, go through all lots of stuff that I went through. There's a meeting that they have with a, a record label called WBA. I was on Sire Records, which was WEA. Warner Brothers was W was Warner Brothers WB. So I mean, they're just WBA, right? So it's that obviously that is. And I remember there's not one thing in that meeting was something probably that was exactly said, because it's all tailor-made to the Wonder Kids. I do remember once somebody saying, I love your record, Wes, it's a complete tour de France. And I remember, I think it was a mistake, it wasn't because they were that stupid, it was just like a funny thing, to, and that's in the book, because it's just something I remember, but you can't forget that kind of stuff. You know, and, and so a lot of the stuff kind of happened to me, even though what I've done is Massively, there would be no point in recounting how it happened to me, but I, I, I can imagine, like, oh, that meeting I was in that time. Like, I was in a meeting once, and, and they were watching a video, it's quite a famous video, and I don't suppose it matters that I take that Chris Isaac video where he was romping on this. You remember that one? Wicked Game. Yeah. Yes, like, made by Herb Ritz, maybe, or someone very famous. Basically, they watched it. Two versions of it, and I, for some reason, there is they wanted me to see it too. I think mostly as a lesson to show me how crap my video was. Here's a real one. So they should, you know, watch two versions of it, and the only difference, 
I'm not a video expert, but clearly the only difference was one was in black and white, and the other was like in sepia or blue or something. You know, it was like that was the difference. The, what, that was the decision. You were meant to decide, was it better when it was just in black and white, or is it better with the colour? And they had this huge argument about whether the editing was better in the second version or the first version. I was like, these guys are arguing about the wrong thing here. There was no difference in the editing. It was the same video, but it had these two different colour things on it. And I didn't say anything because it would have just made me more unpopular. But, but you know, that's the kind of thing that I didn't put in the book. But I could have easily repurposed that event to suit something that happened to the Wonder Kids. As it is with the Wonder Kids, you know, they need to be remarketed, rebranded for children, and they, they, they sit through it and they do it willingly because they understand they have to do it, but it's more than they as humans can take. Ultimately, the novel is about the dangers of an artistic compromise. We've all made, all artists have made one or two artistic compromises, but that's a really big one. And though they're playing the same material, the interpretation of it is so different and the way they have to behave so antithetical to the way they thought they were going to get to behave as a rock band that they're unable to carry it off. And so what it's really about is just this big fork and they go down it willingly but unable quite to do it. And I found that quite moving as an artist. You know, I thought that idea was moving. To actually, it's not even play somebody else's songs and wear embarrassing clothing. It's like, play the, which a lot of people do. You know, it's just play the exact same songs. It's just there'll be nobody over 12 with the gigs. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the Robert Johnson deal that goes down. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> but like any good story, there's a re redemption in it, and it's just a wonderful read. Yeah, and, and Record Store Day is coming up, and you actually have another song, and this is going to be released by, by your label, Yep Rock. What, do we have to be done by one? We have to be done by, well, no, we started one. We have to be done by oh. 15. So we'll have some time for some Q&A here. And, and, and if, if anybody would like to ask questions, um, please feel free to. Shall, oh, shall I sing a song yeah, first? And song then you can think of your questions. Um, yeah, you reminded me of this, and thanks for doing so. Um, it, it's not actually officially a Wonder Kids song, but I did write it with that in mind because there's a, if, I don't remember, but when they're making their second album, Number Twos, um, they, uh, <laughs> when they're making their second album, um, I did have a lot of fun with the names in the book, I have to admit. Um, but when they're making their second album, there's, there's a lot of talk of Becca doing a duet on it, and then she's annoyed it isn't her, they've got in some superstar to do it, said she leads the band. Well, it just happened that I never mentioned, but this is the song they were going to do. And, uh, yeah, there we go. Oh, I'm going to do that. acoustic versions and six outtakes as well, and this is one. Sit at my window, pretty bird, 
sing and let your song be heard. Maybe I'll write you some words or sit at my window Give me food and drink, old man, cause I can't sing the way I am. Oh, I'm tired and I don't understand. Give me food and drink, old man. Sit at my desk, free bird, sing and let your song be heard. I won't say another word or sit on my desk, prefer. I'm hungry and I cannot sing. I'm looking for a sign of spring. Just let me rest my head upon my wing. I'm thirsty and I cannot sing. Sit in this cage, pretty bird. There's water there and let me hurt. I won't say another word. Oh, sit in this cage, pretty bird. Thank you, but I cannot stay. The sky is dark and clouds are gray. Oh, I know I have to fly away. Thank you, but I cannot stay. But I'll sing you a little song You'll hear it as I fly along And you'll hear it long after I've gone I'll sing you a little song That was really important to 45 minutes of music for me. So one time, I was in uh, San Francisco when I lived there, and I went to see Al. I thought, I'll take him a copy of David's album. You know, I'd never met him before. And, and I said, oh, this is my friend's album. I produced it, you know, please have it. And he went to, oh, what's your name? I said, John Z. Harding. And he went, are you the John Z. Harding? I said, no, I'm not. That was like a cowboy in a Bob Dylan album. He said, no, are you the John Z. Harding? They play on, uh, you know, KCRW. And I was like, yes, I am. And I was like, that's amazing. How Stewart turned me. I was so excited. Anyway, in answer to your question, yeah, um, Al Stewart went through a window in Bournemouth, I think, to see the Beatles backstage. 
John Lennon helped him through the window or discovered him in the act of coming through the window and then got him into the concert for free and he watched the Beatles in Bournemouth from the side of the stage. I only know that because I've seen him say it on stage, so it's not a, not a secret story, if you know what Did John Lennon uh, adopt him? John Lennon did. John Lennon did. <laughs> only metaphorically. Great question, though. I'm glad you brought him up. Okay. Because I, I see a lot of similarities. You're both uh, very witty and... and, 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 and yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think he's really somebody who got... Everything's glorious about Al Stewart's career, but, you know, I just think he's somebody who, who got a bit of a short shrift because unlike all those other incredibly influential English folkies who I just saw a documentary about Bert Jantz the other day, everybody talks about Nick Drake all the time, you know, John Martin just died, Richard Thompson's still around, the people who were down at Les Cousins, Martin Carthy and, you know, all these amazing people who were down there at that time. Al Stewart was one of those people, and his major sin was having a massive hit in 1978. It's because Alan Parsons was making that sound. Yeah, you know, and, you know, Year of the Cat was a huge hit, and that's kind of why he is, that's the sole reason, because that was exactly the wrong time to have that hit, because punk was what was really happening then, not Year of the Cat, and because he had the nerve to have that late hit in his career, it's kind of, uncooled him somehow. From, it's, it's, it's something he's kind of never seemed to quite recover from. Why should he need to recover from it at all? He doesn't. He's just somebody, I'm so fond of him as a person and also of his music that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm an observer of him as well. I think he's great. Well, let's circle back to one thing. I do want to get some more questions from the audience, but uh, you did mention uh, your, your, your previous stage name. I don't know if it's completely retired, but John Wesley Harding. You now put out, recently put out, your first album under Wesley States. Yeah. And you called it cheekily, uh, self-titled. Right. And uh, so why the decision to, uh, to go with your own name now? I mean, if somebody had said to me 30 years, 25 years ago, you know, you, you know, you can either have the name John Wesley Harding, or you can just be called your real name, because in 25 years' time, you will still be on stages playing music to people. I mean, it's a no-brainer, I uh, Anyway, so, you know, somebody said to me years ago, do you want to, you know, I would have just said, sure, if I'm going to be around in 25 years, if this thing's going to last that long, I'll go under my real name. But at the time, I just wanted a disguise. Hello again. At the time, I just wanted a disguise. You know, I didn't want anybody to know how short and useless my career in, in pop folk music would be and so I just tried to keep I was going kind of under a under a pseudonym and but bizarrely you know it's hung around all this time so but when I started writing my novels misfortune took me seven years and I really did not want that book I really did not want that book to come out with John Wesley Harding on the spine of it because John Wesley Harding is at best a name that refers to a Bob Dylan album in a kind of jokey way and at worst you're naming yourself after a nasty, racist, slaying cowboy from yesteryear. You know what I mean? Yeah. And on the, on the spine of misfortune, that was a serious book that took me seven years. It's a playful book, but you know what I mean? It took me seven years and I wanted to get it right on that book. I was just like, it's going to come out of the Wesley States. The book's going to come out of Wesley. Had an agent who was so supportive, even though the, the sales staff at Little Brown, of course, were like, but you know, you sell this many records, those people will buy this book automatically if you have it under John Wesley Harding. My agent was fantastic. She just went, no, this is what he wants. This is the condition under which we're selling you the book if you want. And so because of that, Wesley Stace became a commodity in the world that is known to be somebody who writes books. And when it came to this, 
uh, album, which is an album of very autobiographical songs for the first time in my life. Um, but anyway, so this was, this was an album of very um, personal songs, and it just suddenly seemed so logical to me. Now's the moment to bring it out of Wesley States. I won't have to bother with the pseudonym. Every time somebody introduces me, they won't have to go, you know, and he's also known as a thing. You know, so we're, we're going through a transitional phase at the moment. But what took you so long to write these autobiographical songs? Why? It's a long time. That is a very interesting question, and it's to do with a little bit of illness and a little bit of feeling lonely on the road and just wanting to comfort myself with a few things that I knew to be true and surround myself. And, and so I started writing these songs very easily and very, uh, they came very easily to me. Well, and you co-wrote a couple of songs that are on self-titled with Eleanor Freeberg yeah. once again and, and actually you co-wrote pretty much her whole album, uh, personal yeah. record, and they're great songs and we love them at WTMD as well. Hopefully we'll get to it. We need you all to chatter a little bit, so let's get some questions from the audience. Anybody? Yeah. yeah. So every year on Lauren's birthday, I use one of the songs of the Ravencon for my Spanish class. So Which one? The one where they get the car and they're Red Rose and the Bride. Darwin. So oh, Darwin. Oh, right, right, right. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You see the kids, and they're high school kids, and they're, you know, you happy, and then they realize, and they're fit. and I always thought he would really enjoy seeing <laughs> <laughs> And then we had a about it, and it was, it was uh, so amazing, and it sort of worked out around that there's some really interesting songs. Oh, that, well, no, yeah, but the truth is I, I, I can only write the way I write, and when I try and write something for a purpose, like a song for a TV show, I'm useless at that. I can only write the things that come out of my head in the way they come out of my head, and you have to know that about yourself. And, um, you know, it's good to know those things. The trouble with Darwin's song is it has the second verse then, it's about the white tiger eating Siegfried and Roy, yeah. which I wrote before it happened. <laughs> Which is terrible. Well, it's not prophetic. It's just so effing obvious that it's going to happen at one point. It's like, it's like in the song I wrote about the Beatles, predicting the Beatles reunion. When it was in America. Yeah, when I said Jeff Lynn would be the producer, and people like treat me like I'm some kind of messiah for you know having come up with that crazy concept. But if the Beatles needed a producer, they picked Jeff Lynn. Before, before he produced George. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so. You know, it's like um, the Siegfried and Roy, that was weird when that happened, but you know, it makes singing the song weirdly, singing that song quite difficult now because it, it makes it seem like you're just singing something snide about something that happened in the past. Whereas it's like, good. good. I'm very glad. I'm very glad. And we have another question up front? Yes, sir? Just a quick question about this book compared to three others. This is the first one that got written, um, uh, you know, a time we lived in together. Yes. Um, was it different writing about yeah. a time, you know, the time you lived through compared to writing about historical novels? It's a very good question. Yeah, it's a little bit, um, it's very different. I, I think, having now done both, if you write in the past, it might seem like you have to muddle things by getting the research right and having the right word for carriage and all that kind of thing. And you could go, oh my god, I've mentioned a Walkman and it's only 1730. There wouldn't be any. <laughs> Mistake. Cut it. But in fact, I think that you can kind of write more purely about things if you set them in the past. Because you are not, your eye isn't taken with any need to make 
sense of the present, to uh, correct the present, to satire, if, you, if I can use that as a verb. And I found, I found that, you know, when I was writing novels in the past, what I do is I write purely about the conversation. I just write the conversation between two people as though they were sitting on a white, empty stage like a Beckett play or something. And then I read it back and I go, oh, where, where, will I, where can I just throw in the word embroidery or something that's going to make it look... Because the, the audience doesn't need you to paint the whole picture. That's just fetishism. The audience just need, the reader just needs one little detail, and then his or her mind's doing so much work for you. And I find that, but in the present, I just want to describe everything. I mean, if I was writing about this room, I mean, I could get it right, you know, I could see it. Uh, but anyway, so that's the difference. I think, in a way, that historical fiction might be looked upon as a kind of a fetishy thing to do, but in fact, I think it somehow gives you more ability to write purely about things. Because, you know, you're just writing. Um, yeah. Well, real quick, I want to get one question in uh, from me, one from the audience, and I'd like to get one more song. But I wanted to quickly ask you about this little thing that you do up in, I guess it goes in several different places with this cabinet of wonders. Yeah. Describe what that is and what's next one. It's a, it's a variety show. Um, we have not done one in Baltimore. We've done a couple in Philly. Did one in Portland last week uh, with uh, Colin Malloy and the Decemberists and Jim James, Laura Veers and Willie Blouton. Got one in. New York next Friday with uh, Chris Stamey and Nicole Atkins and Chip Kidd, the greatest book designer in the world, and uh, Emily Flake, and then we've got another one, a fantastic one actually in May, that I can't announce one of the people who's going to be on the show, and I must remember not to do that, but the list includes <laughs> Ian McLagan from Small Faces, uh, it's going to be an amazing show. Now NPR picks this up? Or? Yeah, well what we do is we give them a packet of six edited shows and then they have tended to air them and they would do that again if I could get around to getting the shows that we have in the can edited. And those shows, one of the shows was Aaron Neville, Stephen Merritt, Magnetic Fields, wow. Nick Hornby, I mean, I can't, some of the shows are so great. And all it is is a variety show. Wesley Stacey's Cabinet Wonders, generally four musicians, my house band, two writers, and generally a comedian, yes. which is 95% of the time you do. Very vaudevillian. Very, yeah. yeah. And it's always a fun time, yeah. What do we have to do to get the ET&D to carry the Cabinet Wonders? I have to listen to it on my iPad. I have an army, you can twist it. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, be awesome. We sure are. Oh, yeah. now, do you run it? No, I don't want it. They, they, they don't give me the keys to the castle. I don't make the decisions. But I'll twist their arms. See, twist my arms. It's not on anywhere around here, in fact. Yeah. No. no. Well, they're going to be sending. Got a card? They're going to be sending a, a bunch of new ones out pretty soon. So, you know. But at least you can listen to it on your iPad nowadays. Email Steve. Yeah, exactly. Steve, ask Archie anything you want. Yeah. Can we take one more question from the audience? Yes, ma'am. No, no. Uh, no, Bob Dylan's not. I mean, Bob Dylan may or may not be a racist, but I didn't. <laughs> Let's not open up that kind of words. Obviously, Bob Dylan might be in the Ku Klux Klan. I don't want to go there. I'm not saying he is. Or he isn't. What I was saying was, John Wesley Harding, whom he named an album after, was a racist. The cowboy. He was a nasty man who went around killing Mexicans. Very went around killing Mexicans. A very unpleasant individual. You know, who, who about whom John you know, Bob Dylan sang, 
John Wesley Harding was a friend to the poor, and he travelled with a gun in every hand. He was always known to help an honest man. He was also known to kill. Him. I have, uh, I have, I have, I have, I, 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 I have very briefly met Bob Dylan. Waiting moment. Oh, one more question. I think we can get one more in. Another song. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Come back. I didn't hear. What song was it? Um, the, the one that my daughter likes is uh, is off my last album. It's called Ride Your Camel All the Way to the Tomb, and um, she has no idea what that song's about. Thank God. Uh, but she sings that one very happily. Uh, I find that kids generally gravitate to anything with an animal in the title, and I generally have one. You know, there's, there's one called uh, Humblebee off an album, there's one called Monkey and His Cat a couple of albums ago, and I find that kids generally gravitate towards those songs. But definitely Ride Your Camel, it's a, Ride Your Camel's good because it's got this doo 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 it's got a kind of a, a bit of a herky-jerky rhythm, like a, a camel ride, perhaps. There's a song off this album that I, I just love. If you're a music fan, you've got to love this song, just the description of meeting somebody that's also in the music. It's called When I Knew. Could you play that? Oh, When I Knew or Sarah Sarah? Oh, either one, actually. Uh, I'll second. Can you do When I Knew? Uh, which one? Can, can you do When I Knew? When I Knew, sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. I could see the tops of her white socks just beneath the desk. Her pants didn't reach all the way down to her legs. And you know what happened next? I said hi politely, and we went out for coffee. Yeah, 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 and that was when I knew, that was when I knew I was wrong. That was when I knew. They said we like weird music, and she played this soft machine. Left me a record of badly warped, which screwed up everything. I was broke just 15. I scoured London for a replacement, found one cheap in an Oxford Street basement game. That was when I knew, that was when I knew I was wrong, wrong, wrong. That was when I knew. We played her song from scratch that night, and when she'd done with singing, she exited stage right, left us winging it, and the band went down swinging, and she made her exit arms in the air, but I caught her eyes unprepared, and that was when I knew, that was when I knew I was wrong, 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 that was when I knew. I met her in my bedroom, at a party Halloween And she was wearing a pair of dungarees I sang, come on Eileen I was being slightly mean And it just made her smile Which made me feel childish Yeah, yeah, yeah That was when I knew That was when I knew I was wrong, wrong, wrong That was when I knew Met her in much, picked me up at the hotel in an old red Mustang. Took me to a demonstration of strum and drag. She listened, I sang, and we drove to Dallas Rock and flying. Cause we didn't feel like dying, and I couldn't get her out of my head. 
so I got her out of hers instead. I couldn't get her out of my head, so I got her out of hers instead. I couldn't get her out of my head, and we ended up in bed. She glided by on antique roller skates, overtook our car. I watched her disappear from where we parked. It was just south of market In the Castro sun she glistened And when she spoke to me I listened And that was when I knew That was when I knew I was wrong, wrong, wrong That was when I knew I said I'd cook a curry Which got me in her kitchen But a friend turned up by chance And my spice seemed less bewitching which left me feeling itchy She stayed for one whole bottle of wine But we played it cool, we bide our time And that's when I knew, that's when I knew Early. And you're looking wonder again one more time for Wesley State. Thank you. That was really nice. And I, and I, say, I, I think I've done a bunch of these things, uh, obviously, when a book comes out, you do, and, and the reviews are still coming out of the book, but there's always stuff to go around and do. And Eric, by far the person who I talked to who knew and wanted to discuss the book rather than general facts about me is surrounding the book. So I would like to say a great round of applause. Sarah, thank you. I'm going to sign books downstairs. Oh. And here we come yeah, that's Great. Cool. I want to make sure. Uh, make sure everybody can now uh, follow uh, Wes and Eric down to the uh, signing area of Barnes and Noble downstairs as we transition to our next program up here in Wheeler. Um, and I'm sure that uh, Wes will be able to uh, be glad to continue uh, conversations down there and sign copies of your book. Excellent. So thanks, Wes.